The Hunger Games series recently dropped a prequel that will no doubt fail to resurrect the lost art of YA dystopia. Since the original had kicked off a whole new era of dystopia, let's go back in time to explore the genre that should be brought back and why it faded away in the first place. I'm Harry, and this is Trash Talk Reverse. Welcome to Trash Talk Reverse, where I trash your favorite genres, or I do the reverse. Now, today I'm not just going to talk about YA dystopia, I'll also include a few other dystopian works briefly, but the main focus will be the massive yet short-lived YA dystopia craze that emerged with the release of the first Hunger Games movie, anticipated with the end of the last Maze Runner film. These two series, along with Divergent, were popular YA dystopia book series which were all then turned into film series. It started with The Hunger Games, which came out in 2012 and featured a dystopian society split into 12 districts who all had to send two teenage tributes to fight to the death in a televised arena. I mean, you've seen the movie, right? This series had massive hype from the get-go because of its concept and the books it was based on. Plus, it came out right after Harry Potter came to a close, so audiences were looking for that next big series featuring young adult characters. I've honestly seen the first Hunger Games movie a million times, and it will really never get old. Yeah, there's a couple bars that are a little corny, but overall it's definitely one of the best movies out there. The film is really consistent tonally, with great world building and a very interesting set of side characters to surround Katniss. Plus, President Snow makes a great villain, and although he doesn't exactly do much in this installment, he very confidently and calmly represents the problem of the Capitol and the games as a whole. I like that the movie version added the scenes with him and Seneca that weren't in the book because they give you great insight to how the games retains its viewership after 74 years without a rebellion in sight. I love how he and Seneca discuss the idea of hope and how a little is effective but a lot is dangerous. He says, a spark is fine, but it should be contained. It's a theme I wish had been carried through into Mockingjay, but we'll get to that crapshoot in a moment. Probably the main thing that makes this first movie so popular is its premise of the games. When Katniss goes to the Capitol and we see them all training, and then the actual survival portion of the movie, this is the stuff that's most interesting. People love to watch survival type stuff like this because it's like stepping into the character's shoes and seeing how they survive without having the burden of having to survive yourself. Of course, even when you watch this for the first time, you know that Katniss will survive, and frankly it would be bad writing if she didn't. And you might also think they'll somehow find a way for Peta to make it since he's getting so much screen time. But the joy is in the how, which is why it has such a high rewatch value. As much as this series is against the idea of watching kids fight to the death, that is somehow also its biggest draw. It's not that we want to see teenagers being forced to fight to the death, but we enjoy watching Katniss use her talents and her knowledge to figure out how to survive because she's like the self-insert character here, so we want to see her survive and win. It's different for us than the actual audiences in the capital since we know this is fake and it's acting and no one will actually die. Being in the games for real would suck, living in this world would suck, but seeing this interesting new world and the way it works is cool and there is actually a lot of thrill in watching how everything goes down and how the various characters approach these games. We already get to see the difference between people like Katniss and Peeta who are here by force and people like the careers who are here because their class status among the districts allows them to not only be okay with what the capital is doing, but even be prideful about it. It's analogous to people who join the military because they have no other option versus people who join because they're totally cool with doing their country's dirty work, even if it's not morally valid. While the movie is a dystopia and it criticizes a world of propaganda and a near totalitarian government that forces its constituents to be entirely reliant on them, there's also a lot of analogy to reality TV. Especially those competition reality shows like American Idol or America's Got Talent where people come to chase their dreams and they usually have some sort of sob story or super underdog characteristic that makes people root for them. And not to knock on these shows because it's obviously not the same as a live stream deathmatch, but there's some similarities. Like in The Hunger Games, the contestants are made pretty and paraded in front of the people who might sponsor them during the actual games. It's supposed to be this whole we're proud of our districts and we're proud of the chance to represent and we're proud to be here type thing, but it's two entirely different experiences. The capital audience and, of course, the careers treat it as that and see things like the ceremony as hype and enjoyable, while people like Katniss are literally here days out from fighting to the death, expected to go on and put on a show for people who are safe in their homes. 
And she can't even be grumpy about it either. Like, Hamish keeps telling them, you have to make people like you because those sponsors are going to save you. And that's a commentary that progresses through the movie, where Katniss has to pretend to fall for PETA and give the viewers something to root for. This is what happens in reality TV, too. They try to force situations that aren't organic in order to make the audience care more. Hell, they even do this in scripted stuff, which is where love triangles come into play. I personally hate love triangles. I find them so unnecessary and ridiculous, and almost always it's bad writing forced into a show or movie series in order to get the viewers to talk about it. And unfortunately, it works. Originally, there wasn't even going to be a Gil versus Peta thing for Katniss, but Suzanne Collins' publisher or somebody told her to do it so that it would make the books more popular, and I guess it worked. The way I even found out about this series back then was people I knew talking about Team Peta or Team Gale, which is very reminiscent of Twilight Era's Team Jacob versus Edward. Everywhere there's ever actually been a love triangle, it's always sucked and pissed everyone off, and even when Canon says, hey, this is the person our main character chose, people still fight over it years later, but again, that's the point. It prolongs the discourse so that people are talking about the story forever. The love triangle in the series was literally so dumb, like y'all could've kept Gale as Katniss's close friend, and that would not change the emotional impact of the story at all. The only difference it would make is for two seconds in Catching Fire, Katniss wouldn't be kissing Gale and caught on Snow's camera doing that. They could have picked any other thing he caught her doing that he didn't approve of. But speaking of Catching Fire, this is where the series starts to struggle a little bit for me. It's still good, but not nearly as good as the first movie. We get more world building, we get more of that propaganda, we get the aftermath, but all this literally takes an hour, maybe more. And the quarter quell games in this movie take up the shorter half of the movie. I know the series isn't supposed to be exclusively about the games themselves, but the pacing, man. They could have significantly shortened all the pregame stuff. Everything between the aftermath of the games, through the district tour, through the announcement of the quarter quell, making new tentative alliances, all that stuff is important, but it drags so much it doesn't carry any momentum, and the film feels heavily stacked towards the latter portion. I do still like the movie overall, I think it's interesting to see what happens after someone wins, and the whole facade of having the victors do a tour where they basically say, we totally love the capital despite all the crap they put us through, and the peacekeepers killing anyone in those district audiences who breathes wrong or shows any sign of solidarity, like, that's all really good and important stuff. I heard apparently Suzanne Collins came up with the idea for this series when she saw news of Iraq war stuff on one channel, and then switched and saw a reality show on another channel. So I think that manifests especially in this movie with the propaganda the Capitol's trying to put out and pretending like this is all normal and there's nothing to be questioned. That part where Peta mentioned Katniss was carrying their baby and everyone freaked out while at the same time being supporters and avid viewers of a televised death match is so uncanny to how our actual world works, which is the exact point of dystopia as a genre. The actual concept of the quarter qual games is so interesting, I actually wish so bad I hadn't read the books when these movies came out because the freaking clock arena? Clever as hell. It's interesting to see this time Katniss isn't alone but part of an alliance because the last movie, the alliance was against her. I think also this is the movie where Katniss really starts to care about Peeta as more than just a teammate, so to speak, or at the very least, it's more apparent how she sees him. And it's not just for show anymore. But after everything that went down, the movie ends with Katniss giving the camera an extremely corny, determined, and pissed look. Like, okay? They couldn't have picked any other way to end the movie? Yeah, I know she's mad they couldn't get Peta out of the capital, but it all ends so awkwardly. And even though it's supposed to be more of a cliffhanger type ending than the first one, it should have packed more of a punch. But I guess they were setting us up for disappointment, because that, in a nutshell, is what Mockingjay is. When I read the books, I always thought the first book was decent, the second one was whatever, and the third one was unreadable. The Mockingjay movies provide the same level of satisfaction that their book did. None. Splitting up the already boring-ass book into two movies was a massive mistake. I know they wanted to drive up box office numbers following the example set by Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2, but the Deathly Hallows book was massive and they split up the movies because they literally could not finish the story in one movie. Twilight, which I've never seen, split up Breaking Dawn as well, so I guess Hunger Games thought they were following this new trend of splitting up your last chapter. But it so did not work for Mockingjay. 
so little happens across the two Mockingjay movies. Like, my God, I didn't even watch the last movie when it originally came out, having seen all the others in theaters. I only watched it for the first time last year, and it's completely awful. After they get Katniss out, she finds out about District 13 and President Coyne, and we set up for Katniss to do some anti-capital propaganda, including extremely corny and awkward scenes of Katniss trying to play the part of their Mockingjay. I get that she's reluctant in all this and she's being forced to do it, but it's literally so hard to watch, it's like a failed attempt at comedy. On the flip side, PETA's being brainwashed at the Capitol to do propaganda on their behalf, so we're watching both sides kind of mirror each other, which is sort of the point of these two movies. Like, later on, Coin bombs everyone under the guise of the Capitol to get the last of the people to turn against Snow. And later on, she wants to do another Hunger Games using kids from the Capitol, which is why Katniss kills her so she doesn't perpetuate that cycle of violence. And this is all great commentary, but the package it comes in, it's literally so boring. The plot of the book, and consequently the movies, is just really terrible and feels like the wrong way to finish out the series. I think this saga suffers from something I call loss of premise, which is when a series is based heavily around a premise or idea, in this case the actual games, and then loses that premise in later installments but isn't able to sustain the story without it. Now, I know that Mockingjay kind of showed that their actual war and survival was a bit like the games in real life with the mutts and the pods, but the whole storyline just felt so cluttered as if it wasn't even the same series anymore. Premise is what differentiates these dystopian stories, because you can have a generic dystopia and call it a day, or you can create a specific world environment that carries through the series. Mockingjay just feels like a typical rebellion, and I generally find rebellion-type movies or shows to be kind of corny if not done in an interesting way. I find myself naturally comparing Mockingjay to Deathly Hallows because they're both two-part saga finishers, but while Mockingjay was doing this and that and chasing its own tail, Deathly Hallows felt very end-of-series, end-of-world, and even though they could have suffered from loss of premise with Harry not being at Hogwarts, the series wasn't based around the concept of the school. The school was simply a backdrop to the story. Ironically, Deathly Hallows Part 1 actually felt a lot like a dystopia itself, tonally and in terms of circumstance. Everything at the Ministry with the propaganda pamphlets and detainments, and it's not like this happened suddenly because Voldemort had like three years to build up. The scene of the trio traveling on foot while the radio says names of dead or missing wizards is probably the most dystopian it feels, and I really like that sort of uneasy, we're all alone, we're underdogs, but right now it's looking more like dead dogs, vibe to a dystopian film which I saw in the first Hunger Games, but not in Mockingjay. And while both Mockingjay and Deathly Hallows focus on a war, Mockingjay's war just feels so convoluted and generic. Also, I feel like Mockingjay would have been the perfect opportunity to explore the fact that these kids are too young to be dealing with the war, which we see dealt with in the later half of the Harry Potter movie since, well, they're literally in school and they're fighting at school and their lives as teenagers are disrupted as a result of the Wizarding War. But after the first Hunger Games showed the brutality of young people having to fight to the death to metaphorically showcase the sacrifices of children in war, they kind of dropped that all together in the rest of the series. Like, do we talk about how Katniss and Peeta and Gil are literally 18 years old? Obviously, we see Prim, who's visibly a kid still, and training to be a nurse. Given that it's a dystopia, they already didn't have any chance at a normal life the way we would understand it. But I feel like maybe there's something more they could have done here. On top of that, there's almost no character development for Katniss or anyone else in Mockingjay apart from her agreeing to be the face of the rebellion and killing Coin. It just doesn't feel like an end. It just feels like they had some points to make but didn't know what to do with the story, so they kind of just did whatever. Actually, the way Katniss and the crew spent two movies going around doing all these missions, it kind of felt like Call of Duty Black Ops, like a video game with characters that have to accomplish XYZ missions in order to win the overall war. Except Black Ops had a fantastic storyline, and Mockingjay did not. Catching Fire felt like an expansion and forward progression of the first installment, but Mockingjay just felt like someone wrote a fanfic to an unfinished duology and the writer saw it and said, hey, might as well use this for the ending. The prequel kind of feels like fanfic too, but I'll get into that way later because I'm going to be spoilery and I want to give you all the chance to hit pause if you haven't seen or read the plot details of that book or movie. Though trust me, you're better off not seeing or reading it at all, so might as well just listen to me gripe about it anyway. But for now, let's move on to Divergent, the series that was doomed from the moment it began. 
Compared to Katniss and especially to Thomas from Maze Runner, Triss is such a yawn fest to follow for three movies. I don't think Katniss is the most interesting main character anyway, like she has good instincts and a good heart and she cares about her family, but overall she's kind of unremarkable, which is kind of the point since they made her into the symbol based on her actions in the first movie, actions that were prompted by extraneous circumstances. Whereas Thomas, he's very much a go-getter and he actively changes things around the maze and what comes after. But Triss literally has no personality. None whatsoever. She's divergent, which means she's supposed to have at least two out of the five personality traits according to the sorting ceremony where a hat places them into different houses at her school. Oh wait, wrong movie. I mean the choosing ceremony to put them into different factions in New Chicago. I guess she exhibits some signs of bravery while being in Dauntless, and that's pretty much it. Though her choice to go to Dauntless at least showed she wanted to change. Like, no one forced her to leave her existing faction, whereas I feel like Katniss would never have changed her life if Prim hadn't gotten picked for the games. Not that she really had the choice before, but even in Mockingjay, she was only doing what she was doing because she had to survive and secure survival for her loved ones. And not saying that a 16 to 18 year old should have wanted to put herself out there and fight to bring down the capital, but I think that I just personally prefer main characters that are willing to take on the burdens and obstacles they come across and accept their titles rather than having other people force them or force their hand. Like Emma Swan being the savior, Harry Potter being the chosen one, Frodo being the ring bearer. All of them could have said, you know what, screw this, I'm out, and retired to the countryside, but they didn't. They chose to fight and help defeat evil because if not them, then who? And that's why I think I do have to give it to Triss for taking her life into her own hands, choosing Dauntless, and then fighting like hell to stay. The problem with Divergent is that it's a really unfocused movie. There's a couple conflicts sprinkled in, like Triss having to hide the fact that she's Divergent and Triss struggling to stay in Dauntless, and eventually Erudite mind-controlling the Dauntless to take over Abnegation, but most of the movie just feels like setup. It's scene after scene after scene after scene after scene for like a whole hour of just Dauntless initiation games. Sure, it's interesting enough to see what these games are and how they test Triss and make her work hard to secure her spot, but overall, why couldn't they have done all this stuff in half the time? It's like we have all this getting into Dauntless stuff and then suddenly Erudite starts acting like Death Eaters and within a matter of moments, the movie comes to an end. Where's the cohesion? Y'all could have maybe taken the time to give these characters some personalities. None of them have any personalities. Like, girl, even your mom had a personality, but you don't and your boyfriend doesn't and that's what we gotta follow in the next movie. If Divergent was mediocre, Insurgent was even worse. The entire movie is basically about keeping Triss from opening the Founders box until the very end. That's literally it. No character development, no compelling plot, just a bunch of random obstacles to prolong this as long as possible. Since only a Divergent can open the box, they have to be captured. We go through some boring mess with Triss and the crew wasting time with the factionless and then with Kandor before she gets captured and somehow gets 100% on her Divergence reading. Like, what does that even mean? You're either Divergent or you're not. Or does this mean you check all five boxes? After this, there's some more time wasting and forced obstacles until somehow Triss and the crew regain control and open the box and turns out Divergence is actually a good thing and that was the plan all along and everyone inside Chicago is actually part of a massive experiment. Girl, what? Y'all gonna put this in the first movie? They should have combined Divergent and Insurgent into one movie because literally what was the point of everything that happened? I remember seeing this in the theater with a friend who had read the books and I literally turned and said, let me guess, they're gonna turn against the people who put them here in the first place and I was right because that's basically what Allegiant is about. I never bothered to watch Allegiant and I definitely never read the books, but among those who did, apparently a lot of them didn't even like the last book. They claim the books overall are better than the movies, but given how bad the plot is, that can't be true unless they completely made up everything that happened in the movies at all, which I doubt. Allegiant apparently was also split into two movies, but the third movie did so badly they cancelled the last one. But the first two movies didn't do well either, so why not cut your losses after Divergent? Since Ascendant, the last movie, was never made, I had to read the plot summary for the Allegiant book in addition to the movie summary to see what the hell even happened. So basically the reason for the experiment is that out in the real world, people tried to genetically modify their kids and it led to genes getting damaged, I guess, while genes of other people remained pure and untarnished. So there was something called the Purity Wars. And then they set up experiments in cities to try and naturally reach genetic purity from genetically damaged people. So divergence is basically the newly achieved genetic purity. What the actual hell is this? 
And why would you not tell the people in charge or put people in charge who know about the experiment so that Kate Winslet doesn't end up spending two movies trying to kill the success of the experiment? What is this series even about? What's the actual point? What's the underlying societal theme you're dissecting with the creation of this dystopian world? Because that's the point of dystopia. It's a science fiction genre that explores the dysfunction in our own society and humanity by isolating and heightening various elements of our world to a level that creates a dystopia. I talked about loss of premise for the last series, but this series doesn't even have a premise. The entire storyline hinges on the fact that there's five factions and some people belong to multiple, so there's something special about them. Where is the story? What do the characters learn? What was the point of all this random memory and death serum stuff in Allegiant? This series killed the dystopia vibe so much that even Maze Runner couldn't really revive it. In all fairness though, it was probably a mistake to have all three of these series overlap so much. Mockingjay Part 1, Divergent, and Maze Runner all came out in 2014. And Mockingjay Part 2, Insurgent, and Scorched Trials all dropped in 2015. Three YA dystopia movies each year. That's a lot, and especially with both Mockingjays and Divergent movies sucking so bad, no wonder the genre fizzled out. The Maze Runner adaptation was also book-based, adapted from three out of five books in a series, though the remaining two books were prequels, so the film adaptation still completed the full storyline. These movies all did way better than the Divergent movies, with lower budgets and also higher box office, though not even half of what each Hunger Games movie made. The first Maze Runner was actually very good. Though we don't get much introduction to the broader societal problem in this movie, it's still a very action-packed film with lots of unexpected twists. And I actually hesitate to say twists because they're not exactly twists, but simply aspects of the maze getting revealed to Thomas or changing from the norm. Every 10 minutes, there's some new problem, like Teresa showing up in her box being the last one ever, Ben getting attacked in broad daylight, Thomas and Minho having to stay overnight in the maze with Albie, them finding a way out, the doors literally not closing and the Grievers showing up. And everything that happens feels like it falls into such a perfectly logical and chronological plotline. Like the cause and effect in this movie is something else. The cinematography and editing during the action sequences is also really well done. Like that entire first sequence after he gets out of the box and he's running and then finally he sees the maze. So good. This movie is so contained and yet we get the interesting premise of the maze. We get to see these friendships form that'll last throughout the entire series and become the main reason we want to follow the entire trilogy. We see this mini society with the boys and how they run things a million times better than those idiots from Lord of the Flies, aka the world's most boring and awful book. And then of course the conflict naturally arising. It comes with a really nice theme of do you keep your life as it is, even if it's not all it could be? Or do you take a massive risk to get out of your situation and be free? That's where the whole Galley versus Thomas thing comes up, because from Galley's point of view, everything was fine and dandy in the glade until Thomas showed up and now everyone's dying. But from Thomas's point of view, they have to get out of here because ultimately this isn't life and they don't really belong here. Also, the way information is revealed in this movie needs to be studied because so many screenwriters struggle with info dumping and overexposition so they can tell the audience everything they need to know immediately. Maze Runner only reveals backstories and explanations bit by bit, and naturally. Like when Thomas wonders why can't they go into the maze, and then the doors start closing right in front of him so he gets his answer by that actually happening. It would be really overwhelming for both him and the audience to get info dumped about every single thing that goes down with the maze and the glade within the first five minutes of the movie. We also get some flashes about Thomas's past until we finally learn that he was part of the group of scientists that put everyone down there in the maze. But even now, they still don't tell us the whole story since the characters themselves don't remember. Seriously, people need to learn from this natural spacing out of exposition. Even by the end of the movie, they don't spend the entire time info dumping about the purpose of the maze and what happened with the rest of the world. We simply find out, along with the characters, that the rest of the world has been scorched by the sun and it's practically just barren land out there. And plus there's this virus that turns you into a zombie type thing they call a crank. That's it, and then they get SWAT teamed out of there and boom, the end. The way these three movies go from one to the next, it feels very much like three parts of a whole story that has been split up rather than three stories in succession that make up a larger story. Unfortunately, the second movie, The Scorch Trials, kind of drags a bit. There's a lot of great action sequences in this one as well, including the beginning, which seems to be the case for all three of these movies, each one starting with a bang, like they do not waste time. 
We find out that they weren't the only maze, and rather than being rescued from the people who were testing on them, these people are still them, so Thomas and crew gotta get out. More great action sequences and an emotional scene involving losing a friend in the middle of the dunes and meeting Brenda and Jorge and catching up with the right arm. Like, it's all a good watch, but ultimately it's not like much happened, really. They essentially escaped and met a bunch of people and then escaped again and met a bunch more people and then, of course, the right arm gets attacked because of Teresa's bitch ass, but then they escape again. There are probably three main things that happen in this movie. They reach the group that'll help them fight Wicked and get to a safe haven, they use Thomas's blood to temporarily cure Brenda, and Teresa's betrayal leading to Mino's capture. Again, it's not a bad movie, it's a great watch and it's pretty interesting and a strong core group of characters to hang out with. And we also finally get a look at the broader scope of things in the outside world. They introduce the main theme of the series, exploring the ethics and science. Like, is it worth sacrificing a few to save the many? Is it worth putting all these probable immunes through all this dangerous life-threatening testing if it can mean a cure for the virus? And they get a lot more into this in the last movie, The Death Cure. The third movie doesn't really feel like a dystopian, to be honest. Like, after their train heist, they end up traveling to a walled city, and it's a typical city like the cities we have right now. And the areas outside the wall are kind of like regular city outskirts. This whole movie is mainly about rescuing Minho, and to do that, they have to get to Teresa first. The whole rescuing the immunes and getting the serum and finding Minho section of the movie is really fantastic. Like when Brenda sends up the flare and Frypan pulls up the entire bus, that's not something you'll likely see in any other movie. Though parts of the ending, especially with Jansen and Teresa, definitely dragged a lot. It's also really sad because of what happens with one of our main guys, but it kind of gets overshadowed by the weird-ass love story between Thomas and Teresa. It's not even really a love story, it's just that throughout the series, they have this shared history they can't remember until Teresa gets her memory back, but somehow Thomas still cares about her greatly, even after her betrayal, and we're supposed to feel bad for her after she saves his life and then dies? Um, no thanks. They tried so hard to make it seem like Thomas and Teresa had this love for each other, but y'all can't base this on stuff that happened in the past and off-screen and with one party having no memory of it. Thomas caring about Newt, Mean Ho, Frypan, like all of that makes sense because these dudes have been through it together. And yeah, Teresa also went through a lot of that stuff with them, but she was only in the maze for like a few days, and during the second movie, she was acting all shady up until her betrayal. I think they should have been siblings instead, because first of all, the casting, Dylan and Kaya already look like they could be related. And second, them being siblings creates an automatic bond that doesn't require a backstory to make either party care about the other. Like, that's your sister, so of course you're gonna feel conflicted. It doesn't make sense for Thomas to have feelings for her at all, like you barely know her, and also for him to continue having them after the betrayal that got his friend captured. And then, of course, they tried to do a mini love triangle as well with Brenda, like, please give it a rest. Honestly, if Divergent gets any flowers, it'll be for just putting Triss and Four together without a fuss. Of course, I don't care for that romance either, but at least it wasn't a damn love triangle. Aside from the forced romance stuff, though, this is a pretty good movie as well. I like how they take us into the labs and we see Teresa helping this kid and then telling Minho his blood helped that kid. Like, we're seeing why this is justified in her eyes, at least. But we also see the absolute psychological hell Minho has to go through and why it isn't justified in his eyes. Them realizing Thomas's blood cured Brenda completely was also cool, but damn, just three minutes earlier and they could have saved Ferb. This movie also has some really nice cinematography of the city, especially when it's burning. Scorch Trials had some cool shots too, like when they were all walking in a wide shot and stopped when they heard the gunshot because that meant their friend was dead. Overall, all these movies are pretty nice to look at and fun to watch, and while the overall dystopian theme is pretty simple, that's completely fine because there's also themes like friendship and working together and standing by each other and taking action to change your life. Sure, the second and third movies could have done with some screenplay revisions, but it doesn't prevent enjoyment of the series. I've watched it twice so far, and I wouldn't be opposed to watching it again because the characters are cool and the action sequences are great. Divergent should have taken notes because ironically the premise of these two series wasn't that different. In both you have post-disaster or war experiment in secluded walled areas that lead to the test subjects going after the people who were willing to sacrifice them like this. So how the hell did Divergent manage to screw up their storyline so badly? See how Maze Runner left the maze in the first movie and continued without loss of premise, but Divergent didn't leave Chicago until the end of the second movie? No wonder it dragged so much. 
Weirdly enough, Maze Runner also has a lot of similarities with the Planet of the Apes series from the 2010s, when it started with a virus that only affects humans while the apes are immune since the virus made them smarter. Then it progresses to a movie where most of the humans have been wiped out because of the virus, and apes have to deal with the remaining humans. And finally ends with a movie where the virus has mutated to now turn humans into an ape-like state. There's a lot of dystopian elements to that series, but it's also kind of like a disaster series, especially the last one. Also, the first movie, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, is very much like the death cure where it's set in a regular city dealing with labs and experiments and trying to find a cure for something, which in the case of Rise is initially supposed to be for Alzheimer's. And also, both series end with the survivors, the immunes and the apes, finding a safe haven to start a new life. I wanted to talk about the Planet of the Apes series in this episode, but since there's a fourth one coming out this year, I'm actually going to talk about this series in an episode about disaster movies. There are some other dystopian films that are not YA, like Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men, which is a pretty good movie, also based on a book. Basically, human disregard of the environment led to a lack of fertility, plus war and economic issues basically suggest that civilizations are going down. The movie takes place in the UK, where it's one of the remaining countries that has some semblance of stability, and they get loads of refugees that they arrest. The main guy has basically given up on the world when his ex-wife gets him to help transport a refugee woman, and thus ensues the adventure. This movie also doesn't really feel like a dystopia, it feels like it's literally just our world with a couple differences, but that's totally fine. There's different kinds of dystopia. I think I personally prefer a dystopia where the whole story world is different and unique and not that close to our world while still reflecting problems from our world, but this movie still works as a dystopia and is definitely worth a watch, especially for the main character's development. The premise of no fertility also shows up in The Handmaid's Tale. Also based on a book, it became a Hulu show where the first season covered the plot of the book. It's based on a fictionalized version of future America where many women have become infertile and those that are fertile are forced to give birth for these couples. It's got some good social commentary about the societal roles of men and women and expectations of women, and while it might seem far-fetched to a lot of people, the whole point of dystopia is to take problems that exist for us and take them to extremes to see how society would react. This is the same country that said, hey, let's force 10-year-old victims of the most vile type of assault imaginable to bear children when they themselves are still children and place the blame on them for getting pregnant. So. I don't think the concept of handmaidens is actually that much of a reach, but I have no idea what happens later on down the line because I never made it past a couple episodes into season two. I just got so bored. Something else I never watched was Mad Max, which I know takes place in some dystopian world where it's like this barren post-apocalyptic wasteland, and personally, I'm never going to watch those movies because something about barren post-apocalyptic wastelands is just unappealing to me. That was the setting for season four of Miracle Workers, and while it still had some great satire, I just could not get past the setting. I know, it's so shallow, but the aesthetic is just displeasing to me. It was fine in Scorch Trials because it didn't look like ravaged wasteland, more like empty stretches of land and ruins. To be honest, I don't even really care much for the adult dystopian stuff, though to be fair, there's not that much of it or any dystopia to go around. There's Snowpiercer, I guess, which is good, but it's kind of a difficult movie to classify, and I think it's more like post-disaster, so I'll talk about that movie in my disaster episode. I can only rewatch Hunger Games and Maze Runner so many times, you know? And it's not like I'm rushing to put on The Giver, which is also a YA dystopia, but it's literally so boring and honestly might tip Lord of the Flies' crown for being the worst book to ever exist in the history of books, in addition to boring-ass terribly plotted 1984. Ironically, all these books were assigned school reading for me. The movie version of The Giver also sucked, and I literally don't even remember what happens. I think it's supposed to be this fake utopia where everything's sunshine and roses except underground they kill babies or something in order to maintain the utopia. Don't even bother looking it up, I swear no one has ever liked this book or movie. Ready Player One is also sort of a dystopia, I guess, but half of it also takes place in a virtual world, so I don't really know that it gives off that true YA dystopia vibe that Hunger Games and Maze Runner gave. Though I remember liking it, it's also quite unmemorable. I do want to mention Phineas and Ferb across the second dimension real quick, because even though it's not a dystopia, they do travel to a dystopian version of their own world where the alternate versions of themselves are totally different, which is incredibly cool and not something I've seen done before. But for actual dystopian genre films, the reason there's so few of them is probably because Hollywood believes the genre is the issue rather than the horrible writing. 
These films need a very strong world that viewers actually want to watch people inhabit. They also need a strong premise that can be sustained through the course of the entire story that the creator wants to tell. And whatever element of society they're criticizing needs to be woven seamlessly into a coherent, sensical plot. And unfortunately for the future of YA dystopia, the Hunger Games prequel falls short of all these elements. The first thing that struck me was the poorly written dialogue. It really stands out, especially in the beginning, as awkward and over-exposition-y. The world as it was before is Pan Am, which the audience is already familiar with and open to enjoying. But the design of this world feels so contradictory to itself. It feels inspired by our world's post-World War aesthetic with its retro TVs, but it's set in the distant future of our world, and the characters have dialogue that sound like how 40-year-olds would write modern-day Gen Zs. I mean, calling this dude Corio? Like, I get his full first name is ugly as hell, but Corio is so cringy, like, why not Cory if you had to do a nickname? I do like the choice to make this film more vibrant than the others, since it's telling a different type of story within the same universe, but it's too bad this color didn't seep into the characters' personalities. This is supposed to be the story of the evil President Snow that we see in the original Hunger Games, the story of how he came to be that guy. And what we get instead is an introduction to Desired Redemption, then a bunch of lollygagging, and then he suddenly says he learns a lesson, and the end. Like, where's the character arc? It's non-existent. We see his goals and his obstacles in overcoming them, and it all comes down to getting this plinth prize which will essentially take care of his higher education and political ambitions. This is literally his only option, and the only way he can get it is by being the best mentor and increasing viewership of the games. We see him putting effort into the mentorship, coming up with the idea to introduce the tributes to the country and humanize them rather than letting them be treated like they live in the zoo, even though they are still living in the zoo. But he doesn't actually do much else about the games other than cheat to help his tribute win. What the hell does that have to do with your viewership arc? Think about the first Hunger Games movie. Katniss and Peeta got this extremely fantastic treatment. They got a luxury train, luxury quarters, plenty of food, training and practice, fashion stylists, interviews, all this theater that works twofold. One, to convince the people to watch and get attached to the tributes and believe they have a chance of winning. And two, to convince everyone that the capital is extremely benevolent and not at all evil for what they're doing. That the tributes being sacrificed to compete is actually the district's fault and they should feel proud to represent their districts and honored to be here. Snow's arc in the prequel does nothing to develop this innate idea of hope and propaganda apart from the tiny suggestion of doing brief interviews the night before. Nothing to show the beginning of the thread that would lead to the superficial royalty treatment the tributes get in the first film. This Snow and that Snow are two different people. It's like night and day. And look, we can see moments where he's talking about the rebels being bad guys and the idea of giving people something to root for, but that's it. No development. There's also the argument that he's actually been that evil guy all along, but again, we literally only see this a couple times with him willing to kill to get what he wants. That has nothing to do with his attitudes towards the games and attaining viewership. By the end of this movie, Snow is the exact same person he was when he started. We're supposed to believe he underwent a massive change because of that little monologue he gave Gaul at the end going, oh, I used to think the games was about this, but now I know it's about this. Bitch, you didn't learn anything. You got a rush from killing one dude and realize you'll do anything to survive, and therefore you now understand the game should be held as, what, a mercy to avoid war and even more loss of life? Shouldn't that be propaganda you come up with rather than something you learn and genuinely believe? The President Snow we know from the Hunger Games movies is one that believes in controlling the districts by giving them a little bit of hope. False hope. Digging into their heartstrings. He says to Seneca, why don't we just round them up and execute them? And his answer is hope. But in the prequel, he's asked, why don't we just execute them? And his answer that he learns by the end of the movie is that they need to remind people they're violent animals? Um, that has nothing to do with getting people to watch the games or refrain from rebellion. Maybe it convinces the capital's constituency because it shows how violent the rebels can get, when forced of course. Or maybe it convinces the districts that they can never rally together if they're always fighting each other and they progress deeper into the mindset that it's every district for themselves. But rather than making these points and weaving them into the storyline, we just have him tell Gaul a generic lesson he learned by being a killer himself. 
If 18-year-old Snow already has these brilliant ideas from the get-go, then you could have kept Snow as this calculating person and then also made him genuinely passionate about creating the best possible games he can rather than just a means to get the plinth prize because he sees the game's power or have him learn the power as he sees the results of his ideas. Ideas plural. Like y'all could have had him doing so much more than, oh, let's get these kids an interview and the sponsor thing. That's just literally the mentors pushing buttons and sending drones rather than building the basis for what sponsorship becomes in the first movie, which again ties into the viewer attachment and convincing the capitalist populace. Because of how little this movie tried with character and theme, they were totally doomed with the plot, because my god, the plot. Ridiculous. Honestly. The idea of the capital graduates being the first mentors was good, but then everything else was just dumb. I think it was a misstep to make Snow a part of a family fallen from grace trying to get back in the capital's good graces. Colin should have had his father directly come up with the games rather than taking his friend's drunken ideas to Viola Davis, whose performance yet again carried a piece of work with extremely inferior writing. And yes, that's a diss on how to get away with turd-er. I guess this part is more personal opinion, but I think it makes for a better story to have the Snow family be directly responsible for inventing and creating and running the games. And it also makes sense thematically. In addition to this, the rest of the plot is extremely random and convoluted. Like after all the drawn out setup and the comparatively short games, this man suddenly in District 12 plotting with the rebels by accident and then he gets his old friend killed for treason to win favor with Gaul while also killing someone for no reason rather than being a snitch like he was with Sejanus. Then he's thinking of running away and spends time sitting around with his girl doing nothing, but then he finds the only piece of evidence incriminating him and suddenly everything's all okay. Dude, what? All of this could have been avoided so easily if it wasn't just in there to pad the runtime. I'm aware that this film sticks pretty close to the book from people who've read it, and I'm not surprised because of how badly this movie drags and does whatever it wants, whenever it wants, without any regard for thematic flow. When constructing a plot, you need to keep the characters in mind, and since they had no idea who Snow was or what the hell to do with him, they just mashed up a bunch of random elements and called it a day. And speaking of random elements, the songs. Corny as hell. When Katniss sang in the first Hunger Games, it was really powerful and emotive. In this movie, I had to skip every time someone sang because I cringed so hard, and the lyrics were written poorly as well. They really thought that first song at the reaping was going to be their little home is behind moment, but it did not work. When Pippin sings that, juxtaposed with the fall of Ascilius, when Katniss sang deep in the meadow over Rue's body, when Thorin sang Misty Mountain's Cold with the only dwarves who showed up to get their home back, these all felt natural and powerful and like they had a purpose. When a literal child plus half the lower class of Port Royal sang heave ho thieves and beggars never shall we die while they were in line to get hanged for opposing the colonial power, I mean the literal shivers that sends through your spine. Like that is what powerful meaningful rebellious singing in a non-musical film is supposed to look like. They wanted her whole you can kiss my ass to have the same impact as Katniss's I volunteer as tribute which shell shocked the entire nation but this had absolutely no impact at all. Lucy Gray is such a non-character. She doesn't do anything. She had a personality, at least, but it's very two-dimensional. She's a singer who's caring, and she's a bit of a spitfire. The end. One of the producers or director or somebody said that Lucy Gray is more in tune with her sexuality, unlike Katniss, which is such a stupid thing to say because Katniss was literally 16, poor as dirt, the sole provider of her family, just trying to survive, and experienced massive trauma. And plus, this movie has nothing to do with Lucy Gray's sexuality, so y'all are just saying things to make the film seem more meaningful than it actually is. In fact, one point of comparison to Katniss that would have made sense is that Lucy Gray is dumb as hell. Like, why did you not run away immediately when the game started like Snow told you to? Makes me appreciate Katniss even more, because that girl may have been stunned for a sec, but then she figured out her bearings and got to business. And speaking of the arena, let's talk about that god-awful fight choreo. Ludicrous. You can tell it's completely fake. Like, did the editors not know where to cut, or was it impossible to cut around the obviously fake punches? And ending it all with the cop-out snakes that are supposed to be like the mutts from the first Hunger Games, which did not have the same impact at all, and Gaul wanting there to be no winner unless the people begged for it, but then not even developing that one bit or relating it to the first movie's whole they-need-a-winner thing, aka the entire reason Katniss and Peeta weren't allowed to kill themselves? Another missed opportunity in this prequel. 
The only reason I even gave this movie a chance despite my gut instinct that it was gonna suck was that so many people said it was so good. And honestly, I think y'all are just in a Wyatt dystopia drought because with every second that goes by, I keep remembering more and more things I hated about this movie. If they were ever to do anything related to this franchise again, the only thing I'd want to see would be Hamish's game, which was a quarter quell with twice as many competitors, and I'd want to see how he learned the tricks of the trade to become the savvy but heavily traumatized mentor he is for Katniss and Peeta. But given how badly they screwed Snow, I don't even want to know how they'd ruin Hamish. The Hunger Games parody The Starving Games was honestly better than this prequel, though that's not even an insult, because Starving Games was actually hilarious in a lot of parts with interesting commentary of its own, like all the sports comparisons. So if anything, I'd recommend that over this damn prequel. What the original Hunger Games gave us has unfortunately yet to be matched or surpassed in the genre because people have forgotten what dystopia is about. Like when you google dystopian movies, it's just some general sci-fi stuff. Give us that super interesting alternate reality in a world different from our own but with heightened or isolated versions of our problems. Give us that striking societal critique by building it into the world and themes. Give us those unique characters that we could see ourselves represented by or siding with. The first two Hunger Games and the Maze Runner series were able to do what none of these other YA dystopian films could do. So if we want more like that, we need people to really think about premise and build a world around problematic elements of our own society. What if we lived in a world where people of intelligence and the potential to question society were killed or enslaved underground before they even knew what was happening so that the government and corporations could easily control an entirely ignorant and complacent simple-minded mass? What if our country was split into massive sectors where each population was raised according to a particular doctrine and had no idea that the histories they learned were false because they can't interact with anyone else and everything they consume is controlled? What if you live in a world where old age and disease are no longer factors and you can live forever until the government starts rounding up people based on various criteria to curb overpopulation but really they're trying to create a world with a very specific gene pool? And these premises alone wouldn't be enough because someone in these stories would have to realize or do something to bring about the change that leads to the end of these societies. The smart people underground work to subliminally influence the dumb people overhead until one of them realizes something's wrong. A student from one sector earns the ability to travel to another and uncovers how to dismantle the miseducation systems. A person on the verge of elimination figures out a way to revive the old age gene in humans so that all people, especially the evil ones, will eventually die. Amidst all the bland sci-fi of the 21st century, dystopia has the potential to be a significantly rich and entertaining genre that exposes the general public to societal problems in a more accessible package. Thanks for listening. And once again, this was Trash Talk Reverse.